So the scripture today comes from 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. The Apostle John speaking. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Glad to see some beards obediently growing back in the room. Jeff. So uh, last week, I know we were a little a little short um, last week, so we'll probably go a little bit longer uh, a little bit longer this week. Um, actually, after the service, John said, "I think you now hold the record," and I didn't realize that we had started so early. I just look at the end time because it's written right there. Uh, so I didn't know. I think we, we talked for an hour last week. But that says 10 or 11.58, so we're in trouble. I better hurry up. Um, this morning, the passage in First in John really represents a, a pivot from what he's been talking about. If you remember, a lot of what we've been hearing about was doctrine, um, and we, we hear him kind of batting down bad doctrine. We heard about in verse 28, the people that left were not of the church. If they had been of the church, they would have stayed among the church, um, but they moved on. And, and we said, too, they, they didn't move from, like, excite church to examine church or from, from one uh, church in denomination to another or picking one denomination to another. They left the orthodox faith. So he's not saying you can't leave your church body. You certainly can. I know a lot of times uh, folks will be driving pretty far. I know some folks in the room that have driven pretty far, especially those that um, have resisted the will of God and moved to upstate New York, have had to go to pretty uh, pretty distant lands in order to find churches. Um, that's not what John's talking about. What he's talking about is these people who were of the group and then started teaching some other doctrine some other wrong doctrine to the body. Um, perhaps they were, they were teaching uh, some kind of a Gnostic or some kind of a secret knowledge that the members of the church knew less than they should about God. And if they would just learn a little bit more, they would have real access to God. And this damages people, and John's been talking about that. And so, interestingly, what we see today is that he comes off of teaching them about right doctrine and goes straight into encouraging them to revel and who they are in Christ. And that is because sound doctrine causes true worship. Doctrine is not dry. Sound doctrine causes true worship. In fact, worship without doctrine isn't. Worship without doctrine is emotion. Worship without doctrine is working up your feelings. You can do that at a journey concert. <laughs> Some of you guys are singing it right now, right? 
Sound doctrine causes true worship. And so John makes a hard turn from simply presenting doctrine in defense of the faith to encouraging their enduring faith. And he started talking about that last week as we, we ended off in, in, in the end of the second chapter. He encourages them to be abiding, to be about abiding in Christ, spending time in Christ so that they wouldn't be ashamed at his return. Or in those last few moments when the, when the lights go out because you've passed and you're to be absent from the body is to be present with God. I wouldn't want to be ashamed in that moment. Now, certainly I don't plan on standing on my own merits. Um, if anything bubbles out of my mouth, it would be the Lord Christ Jesus' name and that only, because by no works of my own am I saved. And we talked about that, in fact, this morning when we were, we've been talking uh, about the, uh, the solace, um, some of the foundations of the Reformation, and one of those was only by Christ we're saved. And that sounds obvious. Right, that Jesus is our mediator. Uh, the mediator between God and man is the man Christ Jesus, and that sounds plainly obvious. You feel like every Christian believes that, except when you start to really examine that and you understand that there are people that believe that you can lose your salvation. That makes them be the mediator between they and God. And the Scriptures teach that no one can separate us from the love of God and Christ. Nothing in all creation, which is where we reside. So even you, by the power of your will, cannot resist the saving will of God. And praise God for that, because we would. Right? Like, you would absolutely resist the saving will of God. In fact, if you're a believer this morning, you used to be resisting the saving will of God. Someone, some faithful Bible teacher, some faithful gospel preacher, and by that I don't mean someone who stands on a platform. Most people who sit under teaching on a Sunday morning do so because they are already a believer and they probably didn't become a believer in the local church. We talked about that this morning and in our, our fifth uh, run in going through talking about, well, what is the church? By saying some faithful preacher, I mean someone whose feet are beautiful. And I've seen some of your feet in flip-flops. We're not talking about physical form here, Right? So some of you guys need a power sander. But you can still have beautiful feet when you use them to carry out the message of the gospel to those who are perishing. The natural conclusion to sound doctrine is worship. And we'll see that because we see this morning, John encourages the flock to revel in God's grace. And he doesn't just pivot off of it. He uses such powerful language. In fact, the most of the work of this morning is in verse 1 of chapter 3. Verses 2 and 3 just follow along and make sense. So we'll spend our time in verse 1. And what he does is encourage us to finish a race. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, Paul uses this kind of picture of the race, of the athlete that wants to win the race. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable 
You ever watch athletes, elite-level athletes that are training? It is sacrificial and ugly. Um, I remember listening to um, a football player. I can't remember which of the barbers it was, Rondé or Tiki. But they asked him, well, why did you quit playing football so young in your career? And he said, because you see me on Sunday or Wednesday night. You don't see me Thursday or Monday when I'm undergoing massage, deep tissue massage that makes you cry, when I'm taking injections from needles that are this long, when my diet is incredibly disciplined. I get to make a decision about having pulled pork tacos or deep fried chicken wings, which, by the way, should go back to 10 cents a piece and be nowhere near a dollar. An elite-level athlete, with the exception of a few, like linemen who aren't really athletes at all. Train hard. Train very hard. And Paul takes this imagery and he transitions it to the Christian life. And here's what he's not talking about, salvation. That's done, that's yours, that's secure in Christ. It's so much more fun than that to discipline and to work hard and to participate in your own sanctification and your own Christian life with the discipline and energy of an athlete who wants to perform and to win a prize. The prize is not salvation. It is God's own glory in us as we apply energy to this life. To be able to bring God glory as a fool is incredible. It's almost like being part of the uh, Russian Olympic Committee because we get performance-enhancing drugs like all Russian Olympic athletes. right? We have Christ in us. I mean, what better performance-enhancing drug in the world is there than that? right? You might ask yourself, what performance-enhancing drug would a figure skater need? Russia has the answer. What performance-enhancing drug does the Christian need? The Holy Spirit in us. We forget that that's a truth. That's a truism. And so as we go out and as we share truth and light with the people around us, we're trusting God to deliver the outcomes. That's not our responsibility to have eloquent speech. It's our responsibility to speak. And so as John turns the corner from the kind of doctrine, the kind of sound doctrine that protects the flock and causes true worship, he takes this third chapter and he breaks it up. In verses 4 through 10, he talks about winning in life as a believer. Winning in life as a believer. In verses 11 through 18, he talks about a kind of a mutual love among the body. The kind of mutual love that should stamp and be indelible upon us. And it should stand out. It's different than the rest of the world. Our fellowship is different than the way that other people hang out. When you see Christian fellowship, it looks different than Ted's on wing night. Maybe every night is wing night at Ted's. I don't know. It's whatever. The, the love among Christian believers, the, monk, the love among the body is different. When one of us is hurting... All of us are hurting and concerned. We think about our brother and sister. We pray for our brother and sister in their trials and in their difficulties. And so Paul talks about that in verses 11 through 18. And then in verses 19 through 24, he closes coming off of a picture 
about right doctrine that encourages worship, coming off of talking about winning at the Christian life, off of talking about love among the believers, and he closes then in confidence before God. When we're doing those things, when we're abiding in Christ, as he said in 28 and 29, we don't hide ashamed. We're abiding. We're in constant communication with our Lord. We're asking for the strength for this life. Are we doing it perfectly? No. If you think you're doing it perfectly, I'm here to tell you, you are not. Like, if you can't think back to the last time you had a conversation with someone and you were wrong, you're probably struggling with an issue of pride. Verses 19 through 24, I love that he closes with a picture of confidence before God. Because there is no way to be confident before God except in Christ. If you're standing on your own, you will not be confident. Even if you think right now, um, like, if you think right now, I would stand confidently before God, I promise you, if you think you're going to do that on your own merit, you will fold. Even, even you'll see in the Old Testament where people would see an angel who just kind of, you know, perhaps would carry some kind of a, like, a glow of the glory of God. People, just in seeing those angelic beings would fall down before them, the angels would immediately say, get up. And so John calls them to this kind of a life, one that wins, one that's loving, one that's confident. He calls them in verses 1 through 3 so that by showing them the value and the volume of God's love for them. And that's so important. This is why right doctrine results in worship. When we realize the high quality of the love of God, we realize that it's for us, and we realize the great depth of that love. And I tell you, you'll never fully realize it. But when you start to touch on it and understand it, it encourages an incredible worship. That may not be a splayed out, emotive, flopping on the ground, holy laughter, I hope it isn't worship, but a, but a true worship, a true adoration of a holy creator God. And that's the only right response. I mean, when you just say that, holy creator God. Holy simply meaning so different, I can't even explain it. Creator spoke things into existence. No pre-existent material, no stack of bricks, no pile of dirt, no labor, six days of just speaking things to be and doing so in order so that we could understand them and demonstrating his power, stretching out the heavens like a cloak being thrown, putting the stars in the sky, which we can't understand. Let's see what John has to say in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. I, I read from the, from the ESV. You, you may read from something else. The ESV starts with, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Um, if you ever, uh, it, this could be interesting to do in your Bible, if you open it up front, um, in, towards the beginning will be um, a section, it could be in a, in a preface or, or otherwise, and it'll talk about the kind of translation uh, your Bible is. 
Um, and so it says, mine says the ESV carries forward classic translation principles in its literary style, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so what the people that are doing the work of translation are doing is try to really pull forward what was the author's intent. Sometimes they try to maintain some poetic language. Sometimes they try to go word for word. Sometimes they try to carry about the style. So it can be interesting to look at how different translators for different purposes have, have said something. And so in the NASB, it says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. The NIV reads, How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us. I like that. The NRSV says, See what love the Father has given us. The translators are working to bring forward, according to the principles that they translate, the power in the use of the word see. See. See what love the Father has. The word carries a significance of seeing, the kind of a significance of being able to see the kind of love that the Father has given to the believer. It wants you to see it right now. Not see it into the future. This is something that God did for you. Not to look backwards and say, it was great that God did that for me, but see it. It's current for you. Look at what's happening in your life right now. God is bestowing on you an incredible love right now. When you're a believer, no matter where you are, no matter what is happening in your life, God is lavishing you with His love. And we can get confused because we look at our circumstances and we think that's where we take the pulse of God's love for us. And if that were the case, your confidence and your salvation could so easily be stripped from you. If your, if your possessions, if your circumstances determine God's love for you, imagine, it's, it can all be gone like that. We were just talking this morning about the book of Job. Job was the most upright man in the land of Uz. Had a wonderful family, tons of possessions and things. And then one night, the house collapsed on some of his children. A fire came across the land. Some Chaldeans came and murdered his, all of his children, all in a moment. And what Job didn't know is something was going on in the background. Satan came to God and said, Job just loves you because you give him stuff. He'll curse you and tell you to die if you let me take his things away. And so God says, fine, take his things, but don't touch his health. That's fascinating. Satan would love nothing more than to ravage every single one of us. And God gives him permission to take Job's things and people that he loves. And Satan went no further. That's why he's described as a devil on a chain. He couldn't do any more than God permitted him. So if something is happening in your life and it feels like the end of the end of the end and you're a believer, stop and look at the lavish love that God gives to you. This life is a vapor. I love it. It's, it's wintertime. You go downtown and just look at the manhole covers and watch a car as it goes by and that steam that the city lovingly produces and forces you to pay for just goes off like a vapor. That's how Scripture describes our life. It's a vapor. It's here and it's gone. It feels like a long time to us. But if you're, if you're more than 20, if you're more than 30 years old, you look back and you say, where did it go? You look at your children and you say, where did you guys go? It's 
fast. It's but a vapor. And so we can't look at our circumstances to understand whether God loves us. Our faith would be crushed. It would be so rocky to and fro. Things are true in one moment and not in the next. C is working to communicate the significance of the kind of love that the Father has given. Dwell and marvel at what God has done in you. He's making this hard turn after chapter 2, battling against lousy theology, against now would-be teachers. Right? These are the people that said, hey, if you really want to know God, you need to understand some secret knowledge. And I bet you dollars to donuts. I don't even know what that means. I bet you that there was money involved somehow in getting that secret knowledge. I bet you it wasn't free. Buy this oil and your pigs won't die. I believe it's one of the quotes that John Piper had when he talked about the prosperity gospel and described it as hatred. So he's battling against this would-be, these would-be teachers and their awful twisted theology, encouraging believers now to see the greatness of God's love for them. Um, there's a guy named Kenneth Woost who translated an expanded version of the Greek, and, and, and he tells it this way, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, Behold, what exotic, meaning foreign to the human heart, love the Father has permanently bestowed upon us. To the end, that we may be named children or born ones, God. I like that. See, behold, look, right now, the tense is immediate, not continuing through time. Look right now and see the love that the Father has given. And so what we're looking at is the kind of love that the Father has given. It's a concept that talks about the volume and the value of God's love that was given to them. John is encouraging these born ones, these children of God, to present to present their, their state before God, to, to, to understand who they are before God in this moment right now. Those that John is writing to don't have to look at a future promise of standing before God. They have it right now. We see he presents that in verse 11, verse 14, verse 16. Firm confidence is the platform that John pulls them through. Because there's a pressure of false teachers. And we have that today, right? You, we, we have a, a faith that comes from Scripture, and there's a constant pulling from a world that claims Christ around us and offers a grossly easier way. One that says, God is just however you are. Bring, bring, your, bring your whole self, all of your desires. God is okay with that. He made you that way. God effectively has no standard whatsoever. He is unconcerned with the way you treat other people because he made you to be violent towards other people or to do things that are harmful towards other people is effectively what that means. God is holy. He's different, completely different than we are. He is love. We are not. Um, John three sixteen is followed by 17, 18, and 19. And it describes our strong love, which is for the darkness, not for the light. 
God doesn't describe us as being drawn towards the light like a sunflower. In fact, if we were a sunflower, we would duck our little flower head under the porch and die because we would get no sun. That's what we're pulled towards, is darkness. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Whenever John writes, children of God, he always precedes that by a statement that reminds the believers first that they are born of God. If you see John talking about people being children of God, he will have already said that you're born of God. God does not have stepchildren. Um, you're, you're not a child of God because grandma was a child of God. You're a child of God because you are born of God. And that is available to us in Christ. Jesus described it, saying, you must be born again. And all the funny people in the room said, oh, Jesus, should we crawl into the womb and be born again? And Jesus answered basically saying, you don't even know what you're talking about. See what kind of love that the Father has given us. Right now, you have it. Right now, if you're a believer, it's yours. So that you can be called children of God. We see it again in chapter 3, verse 2. Our next verse, we see it in verse 10 of this chapter. We see it in chapter 5 and verse 2. You see it in John 1, 12. You see it in John eleven fifty two. And interestingly... He also distinguishes between believers as children of God and Jesus as the Son of God, the one Son of God. John describes a kind of a family relationship as opposed to one of like an affectionate child. And you know how that is. You look at children affectionately. You look at children differently than adults. Um, John 1 John 2, 28 says, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. John here calls them technineon children. It's like an affectionate use. The little kids, he's describing little kids. Like when, when service is over and you see little kids running through the building and jumping in and out of the baptism, we yell at them and we say, No, this is God's house. You will stand still and speak when spoken to. Of course we don't. We enjoy them. They're a treasure. When we take a knee and look around the room, that is the next generation of the church. We should train them up in the exact way we would train up adults. Now, when John Nicholas and I run around in the room after church and jump in and out of the baptismal, no one looks at us with affection. You say, dude, first of all, What's wrong? And second of all, John, slow down. You're going to roll a joint. It's different. It's very different with little kids. And so John, when he speaks of technineon children, he's talking about affectionately. To that affectionate use, Spurgeon said, because you are little, you're apt to be deceived. There's a great blessedness in being little children, but there's also some danger connected with such a condition. So we must be aware of those who would deceive us. I like that. We're not passively floating through in a life that's unconcerned. We're passively floating through a world that is constantly working against our faith, ratcheting against our faith. 
anything that we would stand for, they want to push over. Because salvation in the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. What you believe is stupid to the world around you. And so when John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. This is not little cute children that run and jump in and out of the baptismal and bang on the cymbals and the drum and that we enjoy. This is children. This is a family relationship now that John is talking about. So he uses that word of little children to be affectionate. He uses that word to show his pastoral care. And now when he asks you to stop and see your relationship before God, he says, not only is God accepting and loving of you, you are of him. You are of his line. In Christ, when he sees you, he sees his own line of people. That's the volume and the value of God's love. This is what John needs us to see. He wants us to know in chapter 2, not to go after this secret knowledge, not to go after all of these things, but to now realize that as we abide in him, we understand more the particular love that God has for us because he sees us as his very own children. And not cute little children for whom it's okay to blow a nose bubble. But as family. God's love for us has a volume and a value that should frankly put us on our heels. And it's given to us. It's just handed to you. There is nothing that you did that made you particularly, particularly redeemable. It's not as though God stood with his arms crossed looking judgingly at a world of people who just don't get it and said, you know what? I actually like Jeff. And I said that name because it hits like eight people in this room. God just freely gives on no condition whatsoever. And it's so hard to understand that. It's so difficult to understand why does God God pick anyone. I mean, we're horrible. We're bent towards the darkness. We want anything other than God. You said before, if uh, um, uh, Ray Comfort said, if, if, if I'm working and I'm banging in a, a nail and I hit my thumb, what people tend to yell is not Mahatma Gandhi. In their anger, they take the name of Christ in vain. They curse God. What is that? When you're going to give a gift, generally speaking, if you're buying a gift for somebody that you know, maybe you just like, ah, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something different. I'm going to try to think through the kinds of things that they like, and I'm going to pick out something that I think that they will enjoy. And so I go to the store, I go to Bed Bath & Beyond, and I pick out that thing that I think you would like. And if you come over to my house, the gift giving does not say that you walk into my house and you see the thing that's made of plastic from China, from Bed Bath & Beyond, and you're like, oh, great, I wanted that, and you grab it off the table and you claim it as your own. That's theft, right? Like if you come over to my house and you take stuff, you're now stealing from me. I didn't give you a gift because I did not hand that over to you. This is how gift giving works. 
If you come to my house, I really want you to understand gift giving versus thievery. And so if salvation was something that we claimed and took, it wouldn't be a gift. It would either be wages or it would be theft. And so God, as the rightful owner of salvation, freely gives to us the gift. Of salvation. This is why when we step back and we look at where we are right now and we know the great love that God has for us and that not only that, it's, it's not that He just kind of winked anything off. He took the very wrath, the measured wrath for the sins of the elect, poured them out on His own Son Christ for whom there was no sin. His Spirit was given over. The wages of sin is death. Jesus gave his own life over as an offering for, for us, for the elect. And so, effectively, God, in eternity past, has already handled our sin for us. The gravity with which he loved the elect is demonstrated by the wrath of God on Christ. I can't explain that. I could just marvel at it. And it's a gift. You did not work to earn it. It was given to you. That's the volume and the value of God's love for us. That's why John at the closing of 2.28 said, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him at shame at His coming. Because as children of God, we want to work to ensure our calling in election is secure. You see that in 2 Peter 1.10. So we can confidently trust God with the salvation that He freely gifted us. In Colossians 3, 3 and 4, we read this, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. And this is all a result of being beloved children of God. That's why he's marveling at all of this. Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So this love of God keeps piling up. Beloved. Only the NIV, I think, says something other than beloved. It says, and instead of beloved, it says, dear friends. It's still trying to carry the weight and the gravity of being specially set aside by God, for God, for His own glory. Beloved, dear friends. This is describing us before God as beloved. To this beloved group of God's own children, His own line of people, the 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 apostle encourages them that what will be has not yet appeared. And why is that helpful? 
what will be hasn't appeared. You can't even see what will be yet. And this is supposed to encourage them. They've already been encouraged in the moment that God loves them right now. And no matter when they read that letter, the tense that it's in, they come back and they'll be re-encouraged that God loves them right now. But he hands them a kind of a future hope. And it's the substance of that future hope that encourages us to abide, to be doing as he closed off chapter 2, not to be ashamed when the Lord would appear, or not to be ashamed when we should die and be before God, but to have been abiding the whole time. It's not a presence in front of God for the first time in a long time, like a radio show, long-time listener, first-time caller. It is, I've always been here and praying and in your presence and your spirit, convicting me of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I've been enjoying in the salvation that you've given me, and now I'm so excited because I'm present. I don't care, in a sense, about all the things that I know I'm frankly guilty of. I'm so thankful for Christ and so glad to have shed off this body of flesh that is tainted with sin and a broken world that groans. All of creation groans. If you want to see what a sinful world looks like, I'm wondering where you are. It looks like this. So John 2.28 encourages us so that at His return, we would be confident if we had been abiding. Not like the person who isn't ready, but one who's fully prepared, who's been waiting and abiding. Jesus taught about this in the book of Matthew. Turn there, if you would, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. This is a parable Jesus sometime would teach in parables. These are stories that are designed to kind of really bring it home so you understand what's going on. And and this one kind of picks up of a concept of a bride uh, waiting to be married. So in in kind of in the Jewish tradition, the husband would be making a home. And when when the father approved that that home was ready, then he would go and get her and there would be a procession. I remember when I was in Israel, I remember being very Americanized because I heard a loud clanging behind me and I was like, waiting to be attacked. I thought it was about to go down. Like, if you know me, if it's fight time, it's bite time, baby. I don't hit with my hands. I'm biting you and I will win. So I thought it was fight time, bite time. But it was a, it was a wedding coming through the middle of downtown, banging and dancing and all kinds of fun things going on that would scare you. You'd stand there stiffer like this because you're really uncomfortable with all the emotions, afraid someone would touch you because you're an American. That's the kind of scenario that this parable that Jesus is teaching from picks up on. And they know this very well because it happens all the time. Because they hear it coming and they think, ooh, a wedding. It's time to dance and have fun. They don't think it's fight time. Fight time. Matthew 25 and verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As their bridegroom was delayed, all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all of those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise said, saying, there will not be enough for us and you. Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. 
And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, you know neither the day nor the hour. Um, spoiler alert, this is not about marriage. Right? This is about being prepared for Christ. You don't know the day or the hour. How many weird stories of people dying in odd ways have you heard? It happens to everyone. Nobody, nobody ever thinks it's them, right? In, in any way, if we're a believer, we should want to be abiding anyway. Not to be ashamed at his return, but to be a continuation of a long-running conversation that's been happening. He shouldn't say, you know, we, we shouldn't be in the position of thinking that we would say, but Lord, we cast out demons in your name, right? I hope you're not doing that anyway, but Lord, we cast out demons in your name. And Jesus looks, you know, like this is how I read it. This is not how it is, but. Jesus is reading a book and he kind of looks up like this, like down his glasses, and he's like, and your name is? You haven't been abiding. I don't know you. We don't know one another. You're not in me and I'm not in you. Hebrews 11.1 1 encourages us, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of, of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That means an assurity that I feel inside myself because I can't see it. And maybe sometimes you don't feel it, right? Maybe sometimes you're like, do I really believe what I believe and believe that I believe it? That's what faith is. Faith is, because I think some of us feel like I, I should just feel it like emotionally. It's okay to know it academically even when you don't feel it emotionally. You know it. You've seen God's character played out in Scripture. Maybe you have some, maybe you have some history as a believer and you say, no, 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 I saw God work in my life. Maybe you need your fellow believers around you to remind you what a rascal you were, you were before Christ took you over. Yeah, it's a rascal. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You can be convicted of something that you can't see and touch and feel. I'm firmly convicted that gravity exists. I also know that I have two left feet. And because of that, each time I walk off this platform, I am really careful. Because I so badly don't want to fall down in front of all you guys. Now, some of you remember when we used to worship over on that side, um, we never took the time to build stairs for the platform that we built. And uh, we also knew we were there kind of temporarily, right? So we had just a little little card table or a little table from Ikea. And, and I went to step up there. Or maybe I did like a half hop jump kind of a thing. And the I'm pretty sure that the projector flew up in the air, spun several times and shattered like a piece of plastic hit someone in the eye, and they died. When you know you're like that, right, you're cautious. 
when you know that you're kind of sloppy with your feet, when you know you trip upstairs, when you know if you have a bowl of spaghetti and you're racing upstairs on the white carpet and you're the kind of person that will trip and fall and have to spend three hours scrubbing that carpet with OxyClean a couple weeks ago, it causes you to move differently. You have a conviction. You know, you can't like foreknow that you're about to fall, but you move differently, especially as you get older and wiser. Because you know, if I trip and fall and I hit this ground, it's going to be a while before I get up again. And when I get up, it's going to cause seven other ailments that will last for the rest of my life. I will have a forever runny nose and a ringing in my left ear if I trip and fall. That's the conviction of things not seen. We act differently when we're frankly convicted that that thing is true. And that comes through experience. That comes through abiding. That comes through spending time in the Word. That comes from becoming familiar with God, learning to trust God with everything. Full bore, all in, all my sin, all of who I am laid bare in front of God because of the value and the volume of love that He has for me. That's what John encourages them of. It's so much freer when you know that, listen, like I'm going to let you in on a little secret. God knows everything anyway. So being transparent is healthy for us. It causes us not to hide things. Because when we hide things, God knows anyway. It's us that starts to kind of feel hidden. It's us that starts to get callous. right? As Jim mentioned this morning in the garden, when God said, Adam, where are you? It is not that God was bad at finding people or that Adam was good at hiding. God was asking Adam, consider yourself. Why, why is this? I want you to think about it, Adam. It's for Adam's benefit. Same is true for us. Verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So as we hope in the return of Christ, as we hope in our future life in God, that, that, that brings about purification, purity in us, because we, we, we lay ourselves bare before God. We, we participate in a progressive sanctification whereby we become more and more into the image of Christ over time. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For we see now in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This describes where we are today. We're kind of cloudy, right? It's like you, 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 you know, you, you're in the, the bathroom, the mirror is fogged up, and you can see the, the old space helmet that you drew around yourself, but you want to see, make, things aren't, make sure things aren't all crazy on your face before you go somewhere, and so you kind of clean the glass. That's how we see in this life, except there's no cleaning of the glass. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Hebrews 12.14 Don't sprain your knuckle. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This kind of a purposeful cleansing of every defilement is what John calls the loved children to God to 
in verse 3. This kind of a striving for peace. These things are the outworking of the hope that's in us. We hope in a future with God because of what Christ did. So we're safe to not be concerned in this life. Maybe you've had something before that's of sentimental value. And maybe people have made fun of you for not being able to throw it away. Maybe it was a a birthday card that someone sent you like 20 years ago. Maybe it's an object. Something of probably little monetary value. Or maybe it's a lot of monetary value. And you could just never bring yourself to sell it. No matter what kind of dire straits you are, you just couldn't make yourself sell this thing because it has a sentimental value value. Chances are an object like that you probably didn't buy. You probably didn't go to the store and buy a watch and then it became so precious to you that you would never part with it. You certainly wouldn't describe that as a sentimental value. Something with sentimental value was given to you. It was grandma's ring, your grandfather's watch. It was a card that someone gave you. It was a It was a receipt from a first date with your now wife of 20 years. It's sentimental. It matters deeply. This is what John wants the church to see about their standing before God. It's so much more than if they'd earned it. It's that God loved them with such great, deep value that He put on His Son's account their personal sin, their personal grievous sins. They're, they're working towards the darkness over going towards God. He charged that towards his own son, brought them in, grafted them into his family, loved them with a passionate love, sustained them throughout this whole life, and then allowed them to work for his glory. We get to live for the glory of God in this life. And it doesn't necessarily have to be something huge. You don't have to go to Uganda. You don't have to, you don't have to suffer in South Texas and be a missionary. You don't have to go to terrible places like upstate New York in order to serve God in these massive ways. Because I think sometimes there's a couple of things that can happen. Number one, we can feel like we're not serving God unless we're doing something huge. Uh, Number two, we can feel like serving God is so huge, we're never going to do it, so we don't. Glorifying God throughout our daily life can look as simple as being thankful. You know, as everybody hobbles into the office, like, complaining like they're nearly dead. Hey, how's it going? Oi vey, I'm exhausted. Be thankful to God. He gives you life and breath. Glorifies Him. That's our service to Him. And so God... inspires John through his spirit to encourage the readers after connecting the doctrine of God to the truth of their value. He encourages them to abide and then to be hopeful for the future and let that transform their life. And the same is true for us. We can see ourselves now and know the love of God for us in Christ and be encouraged to serve us. And maybe it's service of just not complaining so much and thanking God for our circumstances in our daily lives, no matter what they are. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you so much for the blessing of being known by you and being loved by you. And um, while we 
while we don't understand why us, we're thankful. And so, God, I pray that we would be encouraged to serve you even just in our daily motions, God. Maybe, maybe abiding in prayer and being thankful. Maybe that changes our countenance. So God, I thank you for the blessing of being known by you, being loved by you. I thank you for your son's sacrificial death on my behalf, and I thank you for the Holy Spirit that lives within me. I thank you for the church that you've given us and the blessed life that you've given us breath for. I pray that we use all these things for your glory in this life, which is a vapor. In Jesus' name, amen. You would stand and join us while we sing.